0: So let let's discuss then the uh NFA act and cuz you know I've been reading there's a lot of talk about that that that's going to get overturned. So can you talk about what legal cases are, are out there, what the NFA act is, obviously suppressors, short barrel rifles, machine guns, things of that nature. Give us a little The
1: NFA of that. was you know, really what the NFA was a it was a reaction to a lot of things that were going on in our country at the time, okay? And when we look at the NFA and you're, at, you're talking about, hey, what court cases are kind of floating around right now that sort of, you know, point a bullseye on top of the NFA? Well, we're seeing that, right? The bump stock uh, case, the brace situation, the frame and receiver rule. All of these things are the saber rattling of what will eventually become a complete dismantling of the NFA if things continue, if these doozies begin to keep getting handed down in the courts that we're seeing. That what it really winds up pointing to is all of those little rivers trickle into what will be the end of the NFA, right? Because all these things are covered under the NFA. And that the was N- in the- reaction to the gangsters mowing each other down right. with Tommy yeah. guns. So, yeah, so you had you had gangsters killing each other and using machine guns, and you could you could order machine guns through a department store, right? You know, you could just pick up a Sears catalog and I want a Thompson and they could deliver it to your front door. Like it, you know, it was pretty easy to get machine guns. It was guns like a here.
0: hammer or a screwdriver, a pair of scissors. It's there Listen, shears. My
1: grandpa used to tell me stories of how his dad would send him to the hardware store with money, right? To go buy a case of dynamite to blow stumps up on the property. <laughs> and I remember I was cleaning up in my grandpa's shop sometime back. And I remember, you know, I'm cleaning up and I found this box in the corner And sure enough, it was a dynamite box. Now, of course, all the dynamite was gone. But that box was... And I was thinking, my grandpa went to the hardware store and bought that box of dynamite way, way, way back when and kept that box all those years. And I still have that box of dynamite. Well, not the dynamite inside, of course. If you're listening, ATF, I don't have a box of dynamite. I just have the box the dynamite came in. But it just It's a historical artifact. Yeah, but back then, you could just... Send Junior down to the harbor. That dynamite
0: would, would not be to be dangerous to handle. A bunch
1: of Thompsons, you know, in cases of ammo and whatever. So the NFA was, was a reaction to really what, what the NFA really was at this core level was that the government saw that their power system was being threatened by other powerful people within the community who just happened to, you know, they realized that their monopoly on violence was at an end. If you've got all these gangsters out here that could have all the machine guns that you have, if not, probably better equipped than the law enforcement was at the time. Because, you know, you've got private money. You know, these gangsters are running these very elaborate criminal operations, making gobs and gobs of money, not to mention hiding that money quite well so the feds could not get their hands on anything, right? They saw that as a threat to their power. If we're really getting at the core level of why the NFA became to be, that's really why because they wanted to control the criminal enterprise that those guns was fueling, not necessarily, the guns were a moot point. The guns were almost secondary, right? The guns were just that dog whistle that they could go, hey, well, if we, if we, if we have the NFA and we regulate these machine guns, well, then maybe these criminals will kind of take a step back in their criminal, criminal enterprise and do less. You know, hey, we'll, we'll go after them hard financially. We'll arrest them. Like, you know, they're going to do whatever they need to do to seek those people out and remove their power that's what they were really concerned about was all of these the power that these guys had. like they could buy off police commissioners, they could buy off the police, they could buy off courts. Like they had literal power. They were movers and shakers, and the Feds hated that. They were scared of the idea that there was a lateral group of, of a lateral ladder of power within society that could get things done at the level that they did. So they viewed it as a power struggle more than anything else. The NFA was a way for them to go, okay, cool, we can go after these things and we can regulate them to the point that, you know, okay, people can buy these items still, but now we'll know who's buying them. So, like, they really just wanted to identify, like, the types of people that were getting into these in these sorts of guns, and so then they figured, well, if it's all above ground now, we know who's buying them, they're all registered. It's like, it's really just about registering the people more than it is the guns are relevant. which guns that someone had doesn't really matter it's just having the list of people that you know wants to buy when was that act passed 1934
0: 1934 and then at some point the the suppressors became part of that or was how Um, did that all happen you
1: know i'm not going to speculate off the top of my head because i know that they they did have i think there was a revision to the nfa later on i'm not gonna i'm not gonna sit there and try to to spout off a a bunch of information about that without having it in front of me However, at its core level, I'll get back to, like, the core level of of the NFA, the point, yes, was to regulate specific types of firearms that they felt were a threat. They, of course, say, oh, a threat to people. Now, is that to say that that these guns that were being used in crimes, okay, if you're at the bank minding your own business and some criminal comes in and robs a bank and sprays a machine gun, I mean, I'm sure that's, yeah, that's kind of dangerous, like, you don't want to have an innocent bystander get hurt. And I'm sure there's plenty of situations where people were blown up or, or shot or hurt by these criminal activity and things that were going on. So they viewed it as a public interest for them to try to do something to have a, a more regulation on these types of items for what they viewed as a public good or public safety. Of course, they're always going to say in the guise of public safety. Yeah, we're going to protect you. Keep short-barreled shotguns, short-barreled rifles of certain lengths, you know, um, machine guns and automatic you know, off guns. Sawed-off shotguns. Sawed-off shotguns. And those are all the kind of things they were encountering in, in these organized crime and things like that. Um, and, of course, suppressors. I don't know if suppressors were on there initially or if they got came later, but, of course, the NFA wound up covering um, suppressors and things like that as well.
0: So when the law was passed, we say 34? Mm-hmm. What was the net effect on like if you still want to get a Thompson sub-machine gun? What, what what was the process then? You before you could just go to the hardware store and, and buy one, and what all happened right. after that?
1: Yeah, so I think I think that date that we're looking for was like around eighty six when they when they changed things uh, to make it where that where civilians could not buy a newly well, what produced they, machine gun anymore. So in thirty four, okay, what did, did that right, do? So though? NFA passes, all right, nineteen thirty four or whatever. All right, you want to buy a Thompson, whatever, you would pay a two hundred dollar tax stamp. So they set the tax stamp at two hundred dollars, which in nineteen thirty four That's a lot of money. It's oh, thousands yes. of dollars. In nineteen thirty four that was a pile of money. You could buy a, what was a Ford model T I think was originally like five hundred bucks. Right. So two hundred dollars is half a the cost pile of a car of money. Yeah. So like in today's money, that's probably a better part of what, three or four grand or something like it's a lot of money now, you know. Uh, nineteen thirty-four dollars worth is now. I'm not gonna try to do the conversion or figure it, but definitely not a small sum of money in nineteen thirty-four. But they fixed the tax stamp price at two hundred dollars.
0: So if you want to buy a Thompson submachine gun, you could, but it's two hundred bucks.
1: It would cost two hundred dollars, which was top. probably
0: way more than what the gun
1: cost. On Guns like thirty cost, bucks or something. Then. Right on top of the cost of the Thompson. I mean, I think you could buy a Thompson for like sixty-five dollars or eighty-five dollars. You know, it's like you know, so you got $285. Well, really, you're getting extorted into the idea of you're paying three times what the gun is worth to simply have the privilege of owning the gun in the first place. And that they figured, I think, that, well, if we make the tax stamp some exuberant sum of money, well, then only these gangsters will be the ones that can afford it, because they won't care. What's the... They got plenty of money. They figure, well... If some regular person out in society doesn't want to own, the, you know, they're not going to spend two hundred dollars on a tax stamp to own this sort of thing because, you know, most and back then they probably thought, well, most average people don't really care to own a machine gun anyway, so it won't affect them anyway. Maybe that was their thinking. They were it was rather innocuous in that sense. They were trying to throw out a dragnet to bring in these criminals and and to try to kind of so they
0: figure if the the tax stamp, then they know who the gangsters are that are buying the guns. Maybe.
1: I think that, that's a logical outgrowth and a logical outcrop of maybe what they were thinking. Uh, and, and maybe that maybe they end up being true for them, but it was a different time back then. I mean, you're talking almost 100 years ago, so it was a very different time back then. Um, so with that, yes, all right, so the NFA came through in 34. Well, yeah, if you wanted to buy a machine gun, you could still buy whatever gun you wanted to have. You just had to pay the additional $200 tax stamp.
0: Could you still order it through the Sears catalog and just pay the. I'm pretty sure you could, yeah. Yes, you could still. It's just every- it made everything more expensive. <laughs>
1: yes. Of and it course. gave
0: the government a way to find out who was actually purchasing yes. it, whereas before, anybody could walk in and
1: buy it. No, and then go back and check nothing. In 86, that's when they made it to where you could no longer purchase newly made machine guns as an individual, as a regular citizen anymore. So that's when they really put a stop to it completely, right? So now, anything that is was made before 86 is a transferable machine gun that was on the registry that, you know, between 34 and 86, whatever was on that registry, they're in private hands, they're in collections, you know, people have the tax stamp, they have the gun, whatever, and there's a finite amount of them, right? There's never going to be any more made, right? So if, let's say, for instance... In '86, if they wouldn't have said, "Okay, no more newly manufactured machine guns for civilians," like you can't pay the $200 tax stamp and buy a machine gun anymore and just have it registered, that was simply was not good enough for them. They're like, "No, we won't allow any new ones. Only previously registered ones are able to be transferred." So now we have what's called like the transferable pool, or like a, what we call a transferable machine gun. So anything made before, or, or made from '34 to '86. In that time frame that was registered is transferable. So let's say that, for instance, my grandpa owned a Browning automatic rifle, okay, on the registry, a full auto, Browning, and then left it to me, and I paid the tax stamp. And I think they might even have some things in place where, like, if it's a, if you're you can you can have the tax stamp moved over to you, like if a loved one passes away, and I don't think you have to pay. I think they just you know change the name on it or whatever. I'm not going to get into that. The point is though, let's say you wound up with Grandpa's old bar or whatever. Well, he might have paid you know a hundred dollars for that thing back in the day or something and registered it like he was supposed to or whatever. But then now, I mean, that bar is worth thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars what, because with, it's on the registry. grand a minimum. Yeah. You're talking a thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollar gun because they're not making any more of them. You can't just, we couldn't have a company just decide to make brand new produced Browning automatic rifles, just like the World War II ones, and then make them newly produced for today's consumer, because the 86 ban prevents that from occurring. So that's why this now becomes a strict supply and demand issue. There are so many. There are only so, so many. So in 86,
0: it was Congress passed a law that said no more new machine guns. You can only
1: own ones that are pre-1986 that are registered with a Sar. Right. In 68, they had the Gun Control Act. And in 86, that was like the crime bill that like that, that prevented that. There's so many different ones. I hope I didn't, I didn't get that wrong. But it, well, I know it was in 86. So the point is, is that like in 86. That's 100 years of infringements.
0: Initially, yes. starts out, you know, we got all these gangsters buying these, you know, we'll charge extra money. Yes. You're not prevented from owning them, but we're going to know who actually has them right. because these gangsters, it's kind of like we, the way Chicago is now where you get the gang members just, you know, emptying magazines that eat each other in the street. and yeah, not hard
1: changed. <laughs>
0: hitting each other sometimes, but more often than not, hitting some kid
1: that's playing yeah. with Legos in their bedroom because a bullet goes through the window or the wall or whatever. That's right. So it winds up being a supply and demand issue. So if, let's say there, I'm just going to use this, this number, this isn't a real number, but let's just say, let's say there's 100 Browning automatic rifles on the registry. Then that means that there's only going to be 100 ever. Like, that's it. Whatever's on the registry is there. So in terms of the NFA, that's why NFA items are so expensive. That's why you see M16s that are $50,000. You see, you know, MAC-10, like a, a MAC-10 machine gun that should only be a $500 gun. Like, literally, it shouldn't cost over a1,000 bucks. They're cheap to make. Yeah, they're 10, 12, 15,000 dollars, depending on the condition, for a gun that is not even worth the grand, but it's supply and demand, because there's only so many on the registry. It's a finite commodity with an unlimited demand. So that's why that transferable pool is so valuable and continues to be val- valuable. And here's the thing: there's a subset of gun owners out there that own a lot of transferable machine guns that don't want the laws to change. Because if the laws change and, and all this is open back up, well, now their collections aren't going to be worth anything. Yep. If you can newly produce all these guns and people can just simply pay a $200 tax stamp and just on top of the cost of the normal gun. For instance, a Colt Sporter, like, I don't know, like an XM-177 or an M4, let's just say an M4 Colt, like a regular old Colt. To make that gun full auto and make it a machine gun versus a semi-auto is, like, $35 worth of extra parts and maybe an extra, you know, 45 minutes worth of machine time to cut the pocket. That's just a matter of programming the, the, CD, the CNC to, <laughs> you know, to cut the correct pocket and to drill the correct hole. But, like, it's no more expensive to put the auto sear. It's, like, a marginal amount of money more to make it a, a machine gun than it is to make it a semi-auto, right? And they cost the same. So if the NFA didn't exist, you, you would be able to go into a gun store and buy a 14-inch barrel Colt M4 with an auto sear in it for 1000 bucks, Machine gun. And that's the way it should be. So, Interesting. I believe strongly in the ability of civilians to be able to have whatever firearms the military has. I mean, when we look at the Second Amendment to keep and bear arms, right? When we look at, you know... When we look at that right, when we say a well-regulated militia, right, people go, oh, well, it means regulated. It means that we should have laws that that regulate these items. That's what they mean. But that's not true. To regulate means to keep in order, to keep in good repair, to keep ready. The constitutional language, regulate, means to keep in order. Like if I take my scope and I adjust my scope to hit where I want want it to hit, I am regulating that optic. That's what the language means. Well-regulated means well-kept, in order, ready, capable. That's what it means. And people have somehow gotten it all spun up to go, oh, they always go back to that. Well, a militia means it should only be the military. That's not true. Who are the militia? The militia is every able-bodied person that can carry a damn gun. I think it was Patrick Henry Lee. (laughs) He said, who
0: are the militia? The militia are, in fact, the people themselves and include all men capable of bearing arms. That's right. The idea was that when the the you know, because we're, we're a constitutional republic of 50 individual countries and so obviously I live in Florida, Eric lives in Georgia and so if Daddy DeSantis decided to call up the militia all able-bodied males and what came down in the ruling that Scalia ruled on originally, it's When you get called out for militia duty, you are expected to bring your pistols, your rifles, your cannons, or your puckle gun, which was their version (laughs) of the machine gun, to your militia duty. You're supposed to be armed, safe, and competent with firearms when you show up. And so they, they, they wanted the whole body of the American people to be armed for that purpose so they could draw from the population at large that everybody could serve in militia duty. And most people don't know that. The Founding Fathers used the words. And the other thing with the Second Amendment, it says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It did not say the right of the government or the right of the military. It said the right of the people. Who are the
1: people? The people are all of us. It means all American citizens. The militia is the people. It defines when you look at the language the constitutional language of the second amendment is extremely clear it's the most clear constitutional language i would argue in the entire document it's very clear in what it means it's very concise it's very carefully written for a reason now if we could go in a time machine and go back we'd probably tell them hey Y'all need to be a little more <laughs> clear, maybe. Like, let's let's really For the make this in the beyond a shadow of a doubt here. Like, no, no, you want to add this. Like, hey, there's going to be these things called machine guns. You need to probably add that. Like, hey, check this out. Like, could you well, imagine they if George guns Washington? Back then,
0: but they chose <laughs> not to buy them or use them because they were cumbersome, they were extremely heavy, and they really weren't weren't practical. And so it was it was determined that it was better to spend their money and their limited resources
1: and pistols and rifles, or the muskets, right. if you will. Yeah, and Washington, what's, what's crazy back then, too, is that you know, Washington would always tell his men to load buck and ball. So a lot of people don't know this, that a lot of the troops back then would load like, not only the, the, the musket ball, but also shot, like buckshot as well, and they called it buck and ball. And it would increase their chances of getting a, a hit on the enemy. So Washington would always tell his troops to load buck and ball, especially ones that were close to him because think about it like it's a close range weapon like why not have more projectiles and you know that was something that was kind of like a throwback you know to some of the things that that they had learned fighting indians and stuff you know so they they took that that knowledge and you know put it right back into the revolutionary war but it's just interesting to think that that tactics will always trump equipment And they they employed good tactics. You know, they were motivated. They were defending their land. And when we look at the spirit of the Second It was life or
0: death. It's like, you know, if they didn't win, they were all dead. And their families would be dead as well. That's right. Because the British would come in and burn your farm down and kill your whole family. They didn't care because to them, you were rebelling against the king, which was the supreme authority, the divine right of kings, if you will. That's
1: right. That's right. But you know the, the Second Amendment is a precious, precious right. And it's very important, and you know we we should all, you know, regardless of what we believe, we should we should all really de- defend that right and protect that right. Even even people we don't agree with. Like, are there people that that I wish wouldn't own a gun? I mean, yeah, there's probably like really evil people. Yeah, I wish violent criminals wouldn't have guns. Of course, I I don't want violent criminals to have guns. But at its holistic level, that's not what it says. Right, It gives us the ability to protect ourselves against anyone that would hurt us, whether it's our own people, whether it's the government, whether it's each other. It gives everyone equal footing, an equal chance. Right, the gun, gun rights don't care if you're black or white, if you're rich or poor. doesn't care what your place in society is. You, you could have a rich father. You could have a poor father. You could be anywhere in society. You could be weak. You could be strong. You could be fat. You could be skinny. And it doesn't matter. When you have a firearm everyone's equal. And that's what the that's what the founding fathers wanted the most with the second amendment is for all men to be equal.
0: Yeah, Americans are the equals of their government. The government is just our representatives they're supposed to represent us, not lord over us. We're not their subjects. We're not meant We're to be not ruled. their property. Right. They are equals. They're just simply our fucking clerks. And most of them are doing a pretty shitty
1: job. I think most people would agree. I agree. I agree. They're doing an incredibly dismal job. And, you know, the Second Amendment is meant to be that check and balance that if all else fails, that's the one thing we can always lean back on. And that's a very uncomfortable conversation for people to have. They don't want to accept that their life could be uncomfortable. That things, that the entire world that they know it could be turned upside down. I mean, look, many of our founding fathers, Corey, died penniless, right? Right? They, they lost their families in the war. They lost their friends in the war. They lost all their money, their fortunes. They gave up everything. They lost body parts and limbs and eyes. And they gave up everything up to including their lives for what they believed in. And when we look at that at its, at its whole core level, you know, that founding father that might have been on their deathbed and thinking, was all this worth it? You know, losing my family, losing my farm, losing my livelihood, dying penniless. But you know what? I bet their heart was full. Because they knew that what was at stake if they lost, they knew that the country they were trying to build, what was required, the the sacrifices that were required, yeah, greater than themselves. And that's who we are as people. That's who we are as a country as Americans. We're people that value something greater than ourselves, and we've forgotten that as a society. We've really, we've really, you know, gotten away from that. We've strayed away from what made us really, really good in the first place. On purpose. That's right. Unfortunately, are elite. That's it.
0: The Bill Gates is of the world, the uh Larry Finks of the world, that you know Bill Gates, Mr. Man Boobs himself thinks that <laughs> you know the rest of us need to live the way he wants us to live. It's like or I'm not the- gonna
1: trust somebody that looks like that tell me how to live. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you elite bugs.